This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. As a self-confessed geek, I must admit I love learning. I buzz at the idea of somehow rewiring our brains to be more creative. So when I saw Kellyanne Danton speak at a business breakfast recently, I knew she'd have some firecracker ideas on this very subject. I'm hoping you guys can learn something too today. Kellyanne is the Chief Visual Officer at Imagineer.me, an agency which works with the visual mind and neuroscience in order to guide individuals towards more innovative and predetermined realities. Kellyanne commenced a visual language and visual culture practice in 1993, and she has designed visual education and imagination programs for the past 20 years. She's also written curriculums for universities, government, not-for-profits and international corporations, as well as individuals. I'm really excited to learn more about the politics of creative learning from Kellyanne. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to uh, maybe your childhood, because I'm always curious to know how people got on this journey of, of where they end up. Did you remember what you wanted to do when you, when you were a young child, whether that be, you know, your teenage years or earlier or later? Like, did you have this kind of, I want to be a vet, I want to be a doctor, I want to be an artist? What, what was your thing? I didn't have one. I think I really was quite versatile and flexible in what the future could hold. I, you know, I wanted to be a pop star and I wanted to be a princess and I wanted to be a vet probably at some point. You know, I wanted to be everything. But as a child, I distinctively remember being quite present. I had an imaginary friend called Pado and, you know, we were very, very busy just coping with the moment. So the future was not really something I thought about. Absolutely. So you obviously then perhaps went on after school and so forth to have an early career. Before you started your own practice, what, what were you doing? I did a lot of different things. I I worked pretty much, you know, I, I mean, I did my HSC and then I, I travelled overseas for a year backpacking. And then when I came back, again, I was still very flexible and very open and really not sure what it was that I wanted to do. So all of my roles were um, assisting roles and junior roles and they were really quite varied. Um, I worked in advertising mostly because I enjoyed the people. So, you know, while I was sort of temping and taking on assistant roles in, in say, banks and, you know, sort of corporate structures, I was bored to death. But then when I was doing the same role in advertising agencies, I was you know, really quite engaged. So from there, I think that's where my career in art and creativity started. So getting more into the technical side, what role does neuroscience play in how we sort of learn and create new ideas at the most basic level? What's this purpose of neuroscience and creativity? At its most basic level, reality is an inside job. Every single human being determines and perceives the world around them based on their past and based on the information that is processed through their brains. So when you look at it from a neuroscientific point of view, you can change that. 
again, it's flexible. That's incredible. I mean, I'm getting chills as you're saying that because it's sort of, it doesn't feel like that. I mean, I think how, how we think we learn and how we create ideas may be very different to what, what the truth might be. No, I mean, you're born and you can either learn to interpret language as something that resembles English or something that resembles Chinese or something that resembles Russian or, or Italian. It really depends on the inputs that you get. So neuroplasticity is super important because our brains can change and do change all the time based on what we feed it. That's incredible. So I understand that your work is deeply seated in ongoing research, obviously related to the visual mind and this neuroplasticity that you've mentioned. And you are a leader in your field when it comes to visual literacy for adults. Most of the people listening here obviously will be adults. And I understand that your, your expertise is founded on that comprehensive understanding of how we see, how we imagine and how we remember in order to make sense of the environment and create what we call the reality. In terms of how you do that, I mean, what, what's the starting point when you work with adults in this space? The most major function our brains perform is vision. Almost 40% of our brain mass is completely and utterly dedicated to vision. And we think because we can see something, it's true, it's real. And that's actually incorrect. I mean, for a start, we look at everything upside down and our brain flips it around. So when we look, we actually don't use, and when we see, we don't actually use our eyes, we use our brains. So because we've seen something, we determine it to be real. And then we think we're right and everyone else is wrong. So the very, very beginning point is to show people that what they see is not real. And I don't know if you can remember back to the dress in inverted commas last year where um, yes. half the world saw it as um, white and gold and the other half, half saw it as blue and black and nobody could believe the absurdity of the other seeing it any other way. So when you make reality and the way and our rightness, if you like, something that's a lot of fun and really quite, you know, perplexing, it sort of disarms people. People don't sort of need to be right anymore. They're sort of more fascinated with the fact that they could be wrong and that's okay. That's interesting. So that sounds like such a, like you're almost like in a shaking up how we perceive the world before you start working with groups or individuals. And I suppose a lot of my career has been spent um, not only in my own practice, but in working with corporate environments, in corporate environments. And I must admit, I, I always think they struggle with the ideas of being sort of creative, even though they they try. Like, you know, we've all seen the funky breakout meeting spaces and lobbies with beanbags and fireman poles and Lego play tables for executives. But you sound like you're, you're very different in how you approach it. So how do you guide leaders to have, I guess, better outcomes for their businesses and infuse some of this neuroplasticity into what they're doing on an everyday level? Because a lot of what they're doing is not creative. You know, they're kind of doing data entry or writing a marketing release or whatever it might be. Well, look, there's a lot in that question. Um the, the the first thing is that the reason that corporate creative learning is not creative is because it wasn't written by creative people. It was written by marketing consultants who were trying to earn a buck. So they um, designed learning in the way and in the capacity that they could understand it and they sold it to people with the same intellectual capacity around creativity. And so you get what you get. Um the next thing is, you know, we think that because you're doing data entry or something, you don't need to be creative. That's not true at all. Everybody needs to be creative. 
but let's take creativity out of it and call it imagination. Everybody needs to be imaginative because things are changing so fast. And, you know, a lot of what we designed in terms of education and, you know, best, best practice was designed before the internet, was designed before the iPhone, was designed before social media. We're on a different You and I path. remember that time. Not a lot of people do, I don't think. You know, we, we sort of, there's a whole generation perhaps who don't, but it's interesting. Continue. There might be, but I mean, this has only been around for 10 years, so they couldn't be very old, you know. And so um, what the, the skills that we're really going to need are imagination because whether you're doing data entry or whether you're running, you know, um, a, a, you know a massive company, your ability to be able to reimagine solutions and problems as they come up quickly is going to be the key because it's happening so fast. You know, pace and cha- and the pace of change is a really key component here. So, you know, I think one of the things that we need to um, be realistic about is the fact that management consultants really can't be driving creative education. They should be driving management um processes if you like and number two everyone needs to be imaginative everyone and when you say everyone that includes people who might consider themselves to be in non-creative industries you know I'm guessing like accountants or you know all those cliches come into it I guess but I mean it doesn't matter where you where you sit in terms of you how creative you think you are can you can anyone access this kind of learning every single person who is not a robot needs to be imaginative think about it you're working in data entry and something happens perhaps you know the um you know uh, perhaps the system breaks down or there's a blackout or something like that and you've got a deadline and and you know you need to really act on your feet you might be able to turn this around and use your imagination to solve the problem in a different way or do something else, but you don't just sit there and go, oh, that's it, end of story, the technology's failed. So it doesn't really matter where you are in the in the game. You have to be imaginative. And on a practical level, because obviously this is a program where we're going to have to use our imaginations to picture some of the things you're, you're talking about, can you give us an example of how you might um, work with, with a corporate, whether it's be a big one or, you know, an emerging, you know, startup or something like that? How would you work with people who this is totally foreign with? What would you get them to do something different, not just play with Lego? But what, how would you actually get them to start to tap into this? Because like anything, I imagine it takes a while. It's a muscle that you have to keep using. Um, yeah, so there's there's two ways I can see um, uh, the answer to this question going. The first one is is we're assuming that you can actually teach um, some of these organisations or you get the opportunity rather to teach some of these organisations how to be creative. Middle managers and executives who have been in the game for, you know, at least probably since the 90s um, are absolutely doggedly convinced they're right and they know the path and they tell you they won't that that, you know they'll get up and they'll say we need innovation we need to be flexible you know we need to be agile but then when you give them (laughs) but the minute you give them a solution to that they back down and they go oh no we're not we haven't done that before we're not doing that it's like listen you know they're just nuts that look there's a massive problem I'll give you an example Um, the Department of Innovation here in New South Wales made it very very clear to people and culture that they want um, 
you know, government to innovate and they want them to be happy, functioning, imaginative, creative human beings who are, you know, thriving in a changing world. So, you know, what they've done, just gone and spent millions and millions of dollars on running a program on the seven habits of highly effective people. Now, that's, you know, a great book, you know, it was certainly very, very successful. It was wonderful. Feels very old, I have to say, but anyway. It was published in 1989. I mean, why are taxpayers' money being used to teach public servants how to follow a process that was designed in 1989, particularly when it's the Department of Innovation? Now, the reason that that decision was made, because the executives who are stuck in the 90s make those decisions. So assuming they don't, assuming they're open and they try new things and they're going to bring their people up to date with the latest ideas about things. So now we move into the second part of answering that question. The first thing is that we really need to teach people what the creative process is. Being creative isn't something that you're born with where you just come up with all of these fantastic ideas and bang, some people have it and some people don't. Not at all. Being creative is something you um, do and you become fit in order to do that. We don't teach people this. We just teach people if they can't solve the riddle or move the matchsticks in place or, you know, build the Lego in five or six minutes, they're not creative. It's, It's absurd. Incubation periods are really, really important. We first need to define what it is that A, we want to do or B, what the problem is or C, where we're going. We need time to think about that. Then we leave it alone and we go into an incubation phase and then we solve the problem. We start start getting creative. We don't begin with creativity, not at all. And Interesting. That's, that's the pressure we put on people. We say, okay, you know, we just drop them straight on the field and say, run, win the marathon and they're just not fit to do it. And that doesn't mean that they can never win a marathon. It just means that they can't do it without any training or any lead up to it. Absolutely. No, I'm hearing you on that. And I think it's really, really powerful. And I think it'll challenge a lot of people to hear that, whether they're in the management consultant world or they're somewhere else. I guess I want to change tack a little bit to think a little bit about what stops us from becoming a little bit more creative in our everyday life and how do you feel about technology in terms of blaming something in term in, in, in taking away our ability to want to be creative because I even think people have lost the ability to even you know doodle on a page or whatever we just get jump straight online and, and expect that to solve everything yeah look I'm not um I'm not down on technology or its um ability to inhibit um, creativity, um, to be honest. So it, it can it can work obviously to enhance creativity, but I suppose when people are relying on it and always being at their desk, for example, and say you're say you're a graphic designer and you're used to using I don't know Canva or whatever programs you are, and people go, okay, create this new ad campaign or do something really creative with our brand. Do you think that people get stuck on on the process of how they've always done it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to get to the idea of how can we get people to access different ways of 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 learning and being creative beyond relying on okay, I'm going to jump into Google and solve it, or I'm going to have a look at some other designs that are already out there. Well, one thing about creativity and particularly imagination is that you and getting back to the marathon that we we're just talking about is that you need to have particular networks in your brain um, fed 
and um, strengthened in order to have insights and breakthroughs. So if you're doing work on a computer, see when you're in Canva, you're probably um, designing and being quite um you know, engaged in your subconscious anyway. You're probably moving things around and thinking about them but thinking other things and, you know, you're not really um, in what we call the um, executive attention network, the process-driven mind. If, however, what you're doing is filling out a spreadsheet or booking um, hotel um, and and flight and accommodation for a holiday or or, um, returning emails and thinking about what you're going to write, you're not being creative actually because you're using a completely different part of your brain. So for me, the way I see it, the technology is really not the issue. The um, amount of time that you allocate to yourself to move out of a process-driven mindset and into a more what we call the default mode network but a more imaginative um, free subconscious um, network in the brain and mindset is what determines whether that technology is actually going to be um, good for you or not good for you. That's great. That really satisfies me for that question. I just, I did really want to ask you that because I think there's so much reliance on technology, and I guess that leads to my next question. And I am a mum of two, two children, so I'm probably have vested interest here. But teaching our children to enhance their creativity is something that I'm all about. But how do we actually get them to do that? Because I feel like the, the education system, in in particularly in Australia is quite regimented and sometimes I find that children are losing their creativity at an earlier age than perhaps our generation did. So any thoughts about that youth education aspect? We've talked about the adults and now now I'll touch on the kids. Yeah, well, actually I've been working with the Department of Education and they've been doing some research into this for quite a few years now. And they have recognised that imagination is really key and they have now got the fact that imagination and creativity are two separate things and they are wise enough to have declared that they don't know um, how to teach it. So they've more or less outsourced this um, facility to people who are um, experts in it, so you know, people like myself and, and the people that I work with. What we're actually doing is we're working with teachers to show them and to teach them what imagination and creativity actually are, give them the opportunity to be able to engage with it themselves, but also identify it in children. So kids have already arrived. Children already have this imaginative capacity. Our job is not to suffocate and kill it off as they journey through. And that's what journey we're on now that's what we're learning and that's what teachers are learning and the department of education are really really open to this and so are teachers so in fact um the problem with imagination and creativity moving forward is not going to be in our education systems it's going to be in our workplaces that's interesting so why do you say that just just to sort of pick your brain a bit further on that and push push this discussion because I'd love to marry it all up as we're heading towards the end of, of the podcast why will it be with it with the adults do you think that we're going to have the more the more challenges if you like in this in this arena because they're so damn sure they're right well that's going to be interesting when AI and things like that really come into full swing I mean I know we're already there but um, yes I am curious to see how that's going to all marry together and perhaps the younger generation will end up teaching the older generation you know that there is a better way for if this education system does go through this um, 
transition. It'll be a completely different world. If if we look at, um, you know, uh, the developments and how long they took prior to the internet and the iPhone, you know, 20 years was, you know, say from 1970 to 1990, you know, um, was a decent period of time to enact change and to have, you know, things flip on their side. Now that happens every five years and it's going to get faster and faster and faster. So if we consider the next, say, 20 years is the equivalent of the last 80, we have no idea where we're going to end up. And that can be pretty exciting. Exactly. I was going to say, for some people listening, it will be challenging and frightening and other people will think, wow, anything's possible. So watch this space, I guess. We'll all be living through it. (laughs) If we're lucky. If we're lucky. Um, I always ask my guests a couple of questions towards the end of the interview and I'd love to put these to you. One is, do you have any special mentors, inspirational people that have guided you? If so, who were they? Obviously don't need to be well known. And have they what have they really taught you, I guess, about life and your journey? Um, yeah, I do have some people that stand out. Um, one was a student um, that I had uh, when I was teaching at the Australian Centre for Photography and her name was Sherry and she had uh, come to the centre to learn how to use a really simple point-and-shoot camera and I started to work with her and, and really quickly, within an hour, I, I must have said something as simple as, oh, you should buy a camera and take up photography. And all of a sudden, she just saw that as an opportunity and she went out and bought a camera and she started looking for things that she loved, basically, and she was a really incredibly positive person. And her infectious positivity and her ability to be able to observe and watch and see potential everywhere um, turned her into a totally remarkable photographer and an amazing influence on everyone around her. So she was such a great um, eye-opener for me um, to witness the power of positivity and what happens when you start looking for what's right as opposed to what's wrong. And I love the fact that it's actually a student who was teaching you in a way that lesson. She, She taught me one of the greatest lessons in life. That's terrific. So just to wrap up, what would you say is the best advice for anyone here very keen to improve their politics of creative learning? How would they get started? Just some tips. Well, you know, um, it was the very famous uh, poet Rumi. I think Rumi was around the um, 1200s AD um, who said that um, your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that have built against it. So if you want to be more creative, you really need to look at what you're doing to block that because it's there anyway. It's like children. It just exists, but you've blocked it. As a matter of fact, in our courses, that's the very second module. We spend the first two hours learning about the neuroscience of imagination. We spend the next three hours learning about all the blocks we put up to stop it. That's biases, that's um, negativity, that's self-sabotage, So if you want to get creative, it doesn't matter how many tricky things you do and how many cute things you do and how many courses you go on, you will never, ever arrive until you remove those blocks. You've got to get out of your own way. I love the fact that you just shared a little bit about what you do teach and and that's a perfect segue to let everyone know that if you do want to connect further with Kellyanne, we'll have some details 
on our show notes. It's been totally fascinating. So much we could have discussed, but I think you've been really great at articulating what the politics of creative learning is all about. Thank you so much for your time and everyone listening. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network, your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.